All right. Well, before we dive super deep, I'm, I want us to, uh, we're going to do a little bit of review since we've all slept or tried to sleep since, uh, since we were last together. Uh, we've been walking, walking through Revelation, and tonight we will look at chapter 14. Uh, before the next couple weeks, we will, we will uh, pick up the pace a little bit to, to work through the last few chapters before our study on Wednesday night and our, study, our, our, our stuff on Sunday morning uh, get back in sync with one another. Uh, as we come to Revelation, uh, there's, there are, uh, what I'm, I'm going to do on here is I want, you to, I want to remind us what the, the overall structure of, of the book is, not what is the chronology, but what is the structure. When you come into Revelation, uh, you've got the first section is really uh, chapters 1 through 3, where you've got specifically a focus on the actual uh, revelation of Jesus, Jesus appearing to John and displaying the, the fullness of who He is. And then you have the letters to the seven churches. And I'll, uh, I'll just by way of reminder of all of us, there are some who would view the letters to the seven churches as those seven churches are representative of every kind of church and therefore applicable to the church in any day and age. Uh, there are some who would view the seven churches as referring to uh, essentially seven ages of church, uh, of, of the history of the church from the founding of the church at the beginning of Acts to today. Uh, there are those who, 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 and they try to correspond those to certain ages. Uh, and then there is uh, the idea that there, there's seven literal churches in the first century that John is writing a literal letter to as given to him by Jesus. And certainly when we read those seven letters, we realize that those seven letters in many ways, the, ch the churches they describe, also seem to be about... about the, the seven different ways you could describe any church of any age. So there's a secondary. But we, we understand, and, and, and my position and, and what we've walked through is that these are seven literal churches. There's a real church in Ephesus. There's a real church in Smyrna. There's a real church in Philadelphia. There's a real church in Laodicea. And these real churches are all facing uh, various, uh, various challenges. Some of them are facing it well, two of them. Five of them are facing it poorly. Uh, there is a similarity in all of their challenges in that to varying levels and intensities, they are being challenged to capitulate uh, certain aspects of fidelity to Christ, of, of faithful love to Jesus for, for looking like and being like and being accepted and, and, and knowing the safety and pleasure of the world. So, and you've got Christ's either words of encouragement, commendation, or His words of uh, in conviction and, and, hey, wake up and pull on. So this is chapters 1 through 3. Then we move forward, and you've got chapters 4 and 5 where you see, uh, we'll call it the heavenly scene. You've got John getting caught up. The door is opened into heaven. He is caught up. And you see this picture, chapter 4, uh, focuses on this incredible, if, if you'll remember with me, this incredible picture of all of heaven uh, worshiping uh, God, specifically the person of God the Father. And we see God the Spirit there in front of the, the throne of the Father. And then we move to chapter 5, and, and chapter 4 kind of comes to this note of, well, God is exalted, God is, God is creator, God is sovereign, God is ruler, but, but the world is wicked and there's this disconnect. And then all of a sudden, chapter 5, we are brought into, we see the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world, who has bought by his blood uh, men and women to God. And we see Jesus and, and you see this heavenly scene. And then as we move through, as we begin to move through the book, we find that when you hit chapter 6, it starts... Let me make sure I've got this right in my mind. You've got chapters 6 through 8, which are going to focus on, call it the seals, the seven seals, the sealed judgments. Remember, no one is found. There's a book with seals. Chapter 4, no one is found worthy to open it. Chapter 5, the lamb is worthy to open it. The seven seals are opened. And in these chapters... You're going, to find, you're going to find a pattern. Seals 1 through 6 happen. Then you've got an interlude. And then you have the seventh seal, 
which are the trumpets. And then the trumpets are going to occupy chapters 9 through 11. You've got seven trumpet judgments. You're going to see 1 through 6 happen. Then there's an interlude. And then you see the seventh trumpet blared, which then leads us into where we've been and where we are tonight, chapters 12 through 14. So you see, this has been, this has been our pattern thus far, this interlude right here uh, in, the, in the seals. This is chapter 7, where we see the 144,000 of the 12, 12 tribes of Israel who are sealed, and then we see the great multitude of every uh, tongue and, and nation and tribe. Here, the interlude in the trumpets is where we see John uh, recommissioned, if you will, to, to speak and prophesy, and we, we are introduced to the two witnesses. And then you get to the end of 11, the seventh trumpet blares, and it says, John says, and then I saw a great sign in the heavens. Now, I, I want to I look a little bit, refresh all of us for 12 through 13, because 14 is not separate from them. 12, 13, and 14, really all, uh, some would say you could add 15 in there, but at minimum, 12, 13, and 14, as far as the structure of the book of Revelation, they all go together really as a series of what John is seeing in this series of visions, if you would maybe look at it like this, this is not the best, but I'm coming up with this on the spot. When you go see a movie, you've got the previews. They're all previews for different movies. You could even, for any movie, there might be six different previews for the same movie. And they all show you different things. In one sense, here is one, here is one. Here is one. Here is one. These chapters, there is a tether. They connect to everything before. They connect to everything after. But specifically inside of them, they are telling a very specific uh, story. Uh, they, they relate a specific vision that John sees. And it starts with, a great sign appeared in heaven, chapter 12, 1. This great sign is a woman, pregnant, clothed with the sun and the moon, and 12 stars make her crown. We know from the Old Testament we know from the Old Testament that this woman is symbolic for Israel, the, the, the people of God. It's literal imagery right out of Joseph's dream back in Genesis. Then, then it says, if that's the great sign, we see another sign, a giant red dragon, seven heads, ten horns. On those heads were seven diadems. His tail swept away a third of the stars. We, we're introduced to this character of a dragon who is opposed to the woman and seeks to devour the woman's child. And then we're introduced to the child. The, the woman, despite the fierce threat of this dragon, gives birth to a son. This son is the one who is to rule the nations with the rod of iron in fulfillment and reference back to Psalm chapter 2, where it speaks about God setting His permanent king on, on the throne on Zion, who will, who will bring the nations that war and rage under submission says that this son was born and then caught up to God in his throne and essentially summarizing the entire first coming of Christ, his conception, birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. says that after that happens, the woman flees to a place where God prepared for her for 1,260 uh, 1, days, which, which is back to that imagery of three and a half, uh, three and a half days, if it's the 70th week of of Daniel. It's the language of three and a half years, if you put it out in two years. But what happens with the son and his conception, life, death, resurrection, uh, conception, life, birth, life, death, uh, resurrection, and ascension, what happens with the son leads to a great war in heaven where it describes the dragon, and it names the dragon, Satan, the devil, and his, his army of angels, which we would call demons, fighting Michael, the archangel, God's archangel, and his army of angels. And there is a war that breaks out. It says in this war that Satan and his, his forces, they didn't just lose that day, but it didn't matter what day they fought that war, they would always lose. They lack the power to win. And they are cast out of heaven. And then you have this, this statement of praise in heaven uh, that, that he, the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down, giving us this picture that prior to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and, and we see examples of this in places in the Old Testament like Job, 
The mention, uh, there's a mention in Zechariah where you see Satan or a Satan-like figure who comes before God in heaven and says, hey, that person you say is righteous, let, let me throw out all the dirt. I'm going to accuse them before you. And in a sense, anybody pre-Christ's life, death, and resurrection, they were guilty of being sinners. They were looking forward to something that had yet to happen. Paul uses the language in Romans chapter 3, or Hebrews uses the language that they all died in faith looking forward. Paul in Romans chapter 3 describes that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that he paid the price for all sin, all individuals' sins on the cross, and that God is both just and justifier because prior to Christ, he looked over the sins committed and Jesus bore their brunt on the cross. So now, those who place faith in Christ, whether it was Old Testament saints looking forward to Jesus, or it's all of us posts who are looking, who are looking presently at Jesus on the basis of what He did 2,000 years ago, all of us are saved by grace through faith, and there is no one, Romans chapter 8, there is now no condemnation. No one can stand before the throne and condemn us, not even Satan. So Satan is cast out, and it says that they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. It says in, in the latter half of chapter 12 that once the, Satan is thrown down and he finds himself on earth, realizing that his time is limited, he knows his doom is certain, and he knows he does not have endless days. It says that he ramps up in earnest to kill the woman, but God provides a protection for the woman in the wilderness. And it ends chapter 12 with saying that the, the dragon went off to make war. He can't get to the woman, so he's going to make war with her other children. Now, there's when we, we're not going to go back deep dive tonight. There's questions. Is, is, is after, is, is, is the woman still in that part of chapter 12? Uh, uh, Jewish Christians? Is, is, it, is it talking about the, a return of, of Jewish believers at the end of time? Is it Minimal is this. Understand that it ends with this idea that Satan has set himself to assault and, and destroy the people of God on earth. That's how chapter 12 ends without, without us having to in, in try to figure anything out. It ends that way, which sets up chapter 13. In chapter 13, it says, the dragon stood on the, on the sand of the sea, and at first he sees a great beast coming out of the sea, ten horns, seven heads, on his horns, ten diadems, on his heads were blasphemous names, like a leopard, feet like bear, mouth like a lion. And it says, Satan gives this beast his power, his throne, and his great authority. We call this beast, if you'll remember, this is usually who we call capital A, the Antichrist. And this beast is both in some ways, we will find out in later parts of Revelation, a kingdom, but is also an individual ruler who represents that kingdom. And he wages war, and it is granted to him to bring destruction to the saints, to God's people, that the people of the world will, will look at this beast and they will worship him. And the only ones who don't worship him are those whose names have been written in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Essentially, you now have a very clear distinction and demarcation. Here's the beast, Satan's false Christ, and you either worship the beast or you don't. And whichever one of those two camps you fall into, it's either because you do not know Jesus Christ by grace through faith, or you know and follow Jesus Christ because you've been saved by grace through faith. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral. Then we're brought into, a, in the rest of 13, a second beast, a beast who comes up out of the earth, who looks like a lamb but speaks as a dragon, who, who appears, if the, if the first beast is, appears mean and gnarly and, and, and um, not gnarly like surfer gnarly, gnarly like fierce, um, gnarled, warmongering, terrifying. The second beast is smooth speaking. And the role of the second beast is, is to be the one who actually goes and convinces those to worship. And remember, we, we have a parody of the Trinity. 
Satan's parroting the Father, the Antichrist is parroting the Son, and, and the false prophet, who we call the second beast, is parroting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to bring Jesus glory, it's to convict of, uh, of, of our sins, to, bring, to lead us to salvation, to regenerate us in salvation, to, to, to remind us of the words of Christ, to all point us to the, to the worship of Jesus. The work of the false prophet is the inverse. It's to capture the world and to get them to worship the beast. And you'll remember, here's what it says. Look, chapter 13, verse 15. And it, was, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image would speak, as many did not worship the image of the beast, to be killed. Now remember, who's, who's not going to worship the image of the beast? There's only one group of people, Christians, true Christians. It says they're going to be turned over to be killed. He causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men, the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides... And no one is able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, the name of the beast, or the number of his name. And then it gives us the number of the beast, 666. Now, I'm not going to re-answer all the questions that are there. If you want to know those, uh, you can talk to me afterwards or go back on our resources on the website and, and, and go back to the nights. What you, what you need to see, though, is the false prophet sets up a system by which... Everyone who worships the beast, which is every lost person in the world, regardless of economic status, regardless of, of uh, any other ways we would classify and break down different groups of humanity, socioeconomically, ethnically, gender, whatever, all who are not in Christ worship the beast. And those who worship the beast at the, at the movement of the false prophet, they are given a mark on their head, on their right hand, a mark that signifies that they completely and totally have devoted themselves to the worship of the Antichrist, which is not just, according earlier in chapter 13, worship of the Antichrist, but it is worship of Satan himself. And anyone who doesn't have the mark, which is only Christians, true Christians, they cannot gauge in economic commerce can't buy a house. They can't rent an apartment. They can't buy groceries. Not only that, but they are hunted to be killed, and God has turned over and allowed them. Many of them will be martyred, and we've seen this prior in other parts of Revelation. So when we ended last time, we ended with a very dark picture in this cosmic story that starts with a chosen people of God, the woman, a, a promised Messiah child who are opposed by the great enemy of humanity, the dragon. Now, the dragon can't stop the child. The child comes. The child lives. The child dies. The child rises. The child, the Messiah, Jesus, ascends, having accomplished salvation for any who would believe. And the dragon then loses his spot and is cast down and now seeks to devour. And in seeking to devour, when we get to 13, we see the dragon, we see Satan bring all these strands together to the conclusion of human history and bringing the Antichrist and false prophet to do what no wicked ruler has ever succeeded in doing, which is to completely and totally unite every lost person in the world to the worship of one under the rule of one. Things don't look so good. And that's where chapter 14 picks up. Then I looked, chapter 14, verse 1, and behold, the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000 having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. So in the midst of, of John looking out and now seeing the, the, the two beasts at the bidding of the dragon, bringing in a... a, a a one religion, one world governance where all the lost are completely and totally devoted. All of a sudden now he sees, he sees Zion, the holy hill. And on Zion, not rising, standing, indicating firmness, establishedness, permanence that was and is and will be. Standing the Lamb. 
the Messiah, the child, God Almighty, Jesus Christ, standing on Mount Zion. Now, that's that's both significant. He's standing in contrast to the beast rising. It's also standing as a position of battle readiness. May look like, God, where are you? The world's running crazy. Oh, Jesus is standing ready to come at the right moment and show that he's not a pacifist, but is the warrior king of all eternity. He's not just standing, but he's standing on Mount Zion, which, by the way, takes us back to Psalm 2, where when it speaks about God sending his chosen king who will, who will subdue the raging of the nations, where does he plant that king? On Zion. But it's not just Jesus standing on Zion. It says with the 144,000 who, in contrast to those who have the mark of the beast on their forehead and hand. These have been sealed with the name of Jesus and the Father. Now, we've already seen that they were sealed back in chapter 7, where we, where we understood the idea of sealing carries with it the connotation of a special protection. That at minimum means none of these 144,000 will possibly fall. Now, there, there are, is all sorts of debate as to whether or not some of these will be martyred or not martyred in tribulation. Regardless of that debate, the point is none of them will fall to the deception of the beast. They will stand firm. They will endure because they are sealed, not of their own power, but that of God's. Now, if, if we were to really deep, deep, deep dive, and I'll remind us back from chapter 7, there's many godly theologians who have varying uh, understandings of, of Revelation who, who, when you say, well, who are the 144,000? Well, some would say it's, it's believers from all time and all places. Some would say, well, it's the believing church, the true church, Jew and Gentile of the tribulation. Others would say more specific that the language of chapter 7, where the 144,000 are first seen, is referring to at some point in the tribulation, there is a turning of the Jews who in mass throughout history have rejected Christ, there is finally a turning of those Jews to Jesus Christ for salvation. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. I think I've told you that that is where generally and with humility, that's where I lean. Because the very next passage seems to, in chapter 7, seems to imply a contrast between these Jewish believers from the end of time and the multitude of every tongue, tribe, the Gentile believers who will also come to faith in Christ in the tribulation. Now, why, why is there specifically these 144,000? Well, you'll have to ask Jesus that question one day. He wrote it. He showed it to John. It's not trying to exclude anything as much as it is in the book of Revelation, we are seeing on, on grand history the full working out of God's plan, which at the heart of it has included Israel since very early on. And so when you read some of the details in here, it, it's easy to read it and go, well, if, if the 144,000 are Jewish believers, why not the Gentiles? It's not designed to try to be exclusive as which Christians are part or not. It's trying to drive in at a point of what God is doing with his own people, specifically the people that he made a covenant with all the way back with Abraham. So as then it describes, he's standing, and John says, I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, like waterfalls caving down, the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard like, like harpists playing their harps. There was this sound out of heaven that was so powerful, it overwhelms, and was so beautiful, it was like the beauty of harpists playing. What a, what a wonderful piece of imagery. The sound of praise out of heaven is so powerful and overwhelming, it drowns everything out and overwhelms the senses, and it is as beautiful and peaceful as the harpist playing the harp to the soul. we got to keep moving. I could preach a whole sermon on that, but we got to keep trucking. It says, and they sang, and who's they? They, we'll see in a second, if you trace it all out, they would be the 144,000. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth, likely because they're singing about the song of redemption. 
And only human beings can sing the song of redemption. Angels can't sing the song of redemption. For angels can't be redeemed. Only those who bear the image of God. And listen how it describes them. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Now, it describes them in glowing terms. And there are, again, if you do the digging, there are godly theologians that will, that will interpret this in a variety of ways. They will, some will say literally this group of 144,000 are this specific elite force of people that God saves who, who are celibate literally. It's possible. That's not where I land. I think it's describing something spiritually in a symbolic spiritual sense. Why? Because in a moment, we're about to be introduced for the first time in Revelation to Babylon, who will go on to be called not just a woman, but the harlot who, who, who seeks to seduce the world into her ways. Well, before we ever meet Babylon, we're told right here that these 144,000, they are those who have remained pure. They have not played with the adulterous temptation and gain. It's speaking to something, I think, spiritually, they, they've... they've kept themselves undefiled from the world in ways. They're those who were purchased. And I'll just remind you, it means that they didn't purchase themselves. Jesus purchased them. We don't save ourselves. Jesus saves us. Certainly we respond in faith, but our response doesn't save us. It's just the tunnel through which Jesus drives His grace and brings salvation. And then there's a beautiful statement that these are those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That may be one of the most beautiful statements of what is a Christian. What is discipleship? It's fellowship. It's what discipleship is. You see Jesus and you go where he goes by his grace and power. It's what it is. Which, by the way, where did Jesus go? To the cross. What does he tell us to do? Deny yourself and take up your cross. Where else did he go? To the grave, where else did he go? Resurrected. Where else did he go? To heaven. Why did he go to heaven? I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may also be. This is a beautiful statement of what it looks like. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be by grace through faith. You've been reconciled to God, not of your own works, but you are a new creation, God's artistic masterpiece created in Christ Jesus by His grace, not by your works, but recreated so that you might walk out the good works He's prepared beforehand for you. It's beautiful. So here in the midst of this horrific scene, we find Jesus is firmly planted on humanity's throne. By humanity's throne, I mean Zion is the throne on which God says the world will be ruled. Not as only is Jesus standing on that throne, but His, his elect, the 144,000, are there, preserved, alive, ready. And it says this, I saw an angel flying in mid-heaven, meaning that, that, simply saying that point in the sky where the sun reaches its highest. An angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, command. Give Him glory, command. Because the hour of judgment has come, worship Him, command, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink of her wine, the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or hand, he also will drink of the wine which is the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, and those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. This is the need for perseverance on the part of the saints who keep the commands of God and their faith 
in Jesus Christ. So all of a sudden, here's how the scene shifts. John sees Jesus and his elect on the holy hill. And then in heaven, there's going to be three angelic pronouncements. The first is, is, is a pronouncement, a continued pronouncement of grace and mercy, proclaiming an eternal gospel, calling, you notice every nation and tribe, calling out to the world, respond. Now is the time to respond. Fear God. Give Him glory. Worship Him. Recognize that He is your Creator and Lord. He is worthy because the time of His judgment is coming. Then there's the second pronouncement. First pronouncement is a call to the gospel. The second pronouncement is a statement. Babylon. Now, this is the first mention of Babylon in Revelation. Uh, Babylon uh, Babylon in symbolically stands for a system that is religiously, politically, and economically in opposition to all that is of God. It's the Antichrist worldwide political, economic, and religious empire. It's a system in which every nation, every lost person is intoxicated with, deceived, and seduced. It's a system fully headed by the Antichrist. It says Babylon, and we'll see more. Babylon, a system that is at the heart of of the, the painful, murderous, horrendous persecution of, of, of Christians in chapter 13. Babylon is fallen, is the cry of the second angel. We'll see it again in chapters to come, that the greatest system of power that the wickedness and sinfulness of humanity has produced, it's done. It's done. It's finished. And we'll see its collapse in greater detail coming. Then the third angel is going to specify out clearer. And, and, and in there you'll notice there is no way even me just reading. And we're going to get into this in a few weeks on Sunday morning when we come to Revelation 20. There is no way if we are going to be honest to God at His Word to soften the terror of verses like this. Listen to what it says. It says, everybody who takes the mark of the beast, who is that? It is every man, woman, boy, or girl who does not know Jesus by grace through faith. To put it another way, every lost individual. It says, they drank the intoxicating wine of Babylon. And when you choose to drink the intoxicating wine of Babylon... It guarantees you will drink another cup, not of intoxicating wine, but of wrath. It says they will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And what's interesting is in that little phrase, the wrath of God, cup of his anger, there are two Greek words that we commonly translate as the wrath of God, orge and thumos. Both are used here. Orge is the idea of a settled disposition that is against something. So when we, we think wrath, we just think this erratic, chaotic individual with a bat in a china closet just, just going to town and just no sensibility. Uh, we, we, th <laughs> we think a toddler having a meltdown. No rationality, just anger, fit. That's not the idea of God's wrath, especially Orge. It is a settled disposition. This is the line, don't cross it. The line's been crossed, therefore it's already been decided what the response is. Thumos does have an emotional tie to it. It, it speaks of a, an explosive passion against something. So understand what it means to mix together. It means when it comes to sin, God both has a settled line in the sand disposition that can never approve sin, and by default, sinners who stand in their sin. But there is also not just a settled disposition. There is, just as God delights to save someone, just as God feels mercy 
to seek to save and mend the brokenhearted, so God does feel a strong and passionate disposition of emotion against sin. And when its moment comes, that's being discussed here, those things are mixed in full strength, poured out for the final time. See, here's the reality today. Today, God is not any different than that today. God is both settled in his disposition against sin, and he both feels strongly against sin. But today, we live in the day of God's patience. God's line in the sand has not moved. But there's still time on God's clock because He is patient. He does not delight to, to, to pour out hell on people. That's not, he doesn't sit there looking forward to it. We're in the days, according to 2 Peter 3.9, of His patience where He desires that all would come to know Him. Now, all won't. But there comes a point where that clock reads zero, zero, zero. And God's settled disposition and the intense anger of God, which is righteous and just and holy and fair and not irrational, will mix together and be poured out on all who have taken the mark. It speaks of what it will be like, fire and brimstone, sulfur, it is intense heat with a nauseating, vomitous smell. Their smoke goes up, torment, agony, forever and ever, which is one of the many verses. There is an idea that is passed around in some churches that, well, God will punish sinners for a time, and then He'll just simply snuff them out of existence. It's called annihilationism. There is no annihilationism. If you choose to stand before Jesus Christ in your sin on the basis of your unrighteousness, you will experience the just wages of your life for all eternity. The smoke goes up forever and ever. It's what it says. Not just here, we'll see it again in the coming days. There is no rest for those. Now, when we finish chapter 14 out, let me just, I'm going to give, let me, let me read one verse and summarize the rest of 14, and then, then I'll, I'll take us home here. It says in verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven write, Blessed are those who die in Jesus from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they may rest from their labors, for their deed will, deeds will follow them. There's almost this interjection into what John is seeing, where those who will inevitably die in Christ, especially those who are martyred for their faith, who, have, who live in the agony of a world where there is no rest, there is a constant threat of danger. Blessed are those who die in Jesus, for those who die in Jesus will know rest. Rest from sin, rest from wickedness, rest from persecution, rest, harmony, wholeness, peace. And then in verse 14, there's this picture on a white cloud. Uh, they see one like a son of man. Many would affirm this is Jesus. He has a sickle, and, and in an official announcement, an angel comes out and says, now's the time. The harvest is ripe, and it says Jesus from the cloud, he swung the sickle over the earth. The earth is reaped. Then in, then in a further picture, another angel comes out in verse 17 with a sharp sickle and, a, and another one who has power over fire, and, and he tells the one with the sickle, take your sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vine of the earth. The grapes are ripe, and so the angel swings, and, and the grapes of the earth are, are gathered. They're thrown into the winepress of God's wrath, where we know from passages in the Old Testament, it's Jesus himself who crushes the grapes and pours out the wrath of God, the one who bore the wrath of God for mankind's sin is also worthy not just as God but also man to crush and use the wrath of God to bring just punishment upon sin. And just like grapes would be taken in a wine press and stomped and out of the tube at the bottom would come the grape juice, the wine, and pour in, so it speaks about the wine press was trodden and it speaks in grotesque language. Blood came out of the wine press as high as a horse's bridle, that'd be five feet for a distance of 200 miles. That's the entire distance north to south of Israel. Now, here's what happens. 
the day of judgment comes in the end of chapter 14. The pronouncement of judgment is made and judgment happens, period. The earth can't resist. There is no fighting back. In fact, we know from the rest of Scripture that when judgment does happen, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Not all in salvation. We who are in Christ, certainly, we will make that cry out of our salvation. Those who are not in Christ will make that cry having to now acknowledge that the, the wrath of the winepress of God is fair and just. No one one day before God who receives the sentence of eternal punishment will be able to say, but God, that's just too harsh. No one will be able to. You can do that in our human courts because sometimes our human courts get it wrong. God never gets a judgment wrong. And so here is the reality. There was a time and place in our country where we would use the term fire and brimstone preaching, where essentially pastor would get up And let's just terrify every impressionable person in the room into praying for Jesus to save them. That is not the point of passages like this. I want to remind all of us, when Paul speaks about the unbelievable depravity of humankind in Romans 1, he makes the statement in Romans 2 that it is not the abject terror and fright fest of God that leads people to repentance. He says it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. So the aim here when this is recorded is not for me to get up and go, if you don't know Jesus in this room, turn or burn! In anger! No, But God also is not going to soften what is true. You are a horrible doctor if you find that your patient has terminal illness and they walk in and instead of telling them like it is, you say, well, you just got a little bit of a fever. Go home, take some Advil. You'll be all right. What a horrible doctor. What an unjust doctor. You're a a crooked judge. If all the evidence is placed before you of the wickedness of this murdering rapist, undeniable. And you go, you know what? You made a good point in why you did it. It's all right. You'll get out of here. God is not going to soften. The reality is the judgment of God upon sin is in a sense horrifying. It is terrifying to look into it. That is the language of the text. Which means a couple things. One, the reason we gave all that context is because there comes a day where where legitimately it will look like God has forgotten. If God is real, God has forgotten the entire world because wickedness will reign so heavily. You think about the days in your life when you've looked out at the state of our world and you've gone, God, are you you really out there? Understand, our world isn't close to what the world of the Antichrist will look like. And when things look the darkest for righteousness, God's King stands on the throne on the holy hill. God's people are preserved. They are rewarded. And God's victory where He dispenses a righteous judgment upon sin happens, period. No one stops it. That 
to the believer who is suffering unjustly, who is terrified by what seems like a dangerous chaos of this world, that is good news which must inspire our hope to stay firm and not play patty cake with the temptations of this world, whether left or right. But by the grace and power of God to walk the straight and narrow following Jesus. Not only that, but when you and I hear that language, what is, what am I, Wes Wilkinson? Romans 3.23 says the wages of Wes Wilkinson's life are death. That the fair, just payment for my life, all the good, all the bad, everything done by my power and righteousness, which I possess by my own being, all of it equals death. What is death? We just read it. My life on its own. When Isaiah says that our righteousness is, righteousness is like a filthy rag next to God's. A soiled piece of toilet paper. And that's using the Hebrew language kindly. That when I am born broken in sin and I commit sin. By the way, we're judged for our actions of sin. We'll see that in a few weeks. We're judged for what we've chosen to do as sinful humans. That is what the judgment is. Now, realize this. Father, if there be any other way, let your cup pass from me. However, not my will, but yours be done. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame of my sin, so that he who knew no sin but became Wes's sin, that I, by his grace, through faith, might not perish but possess the righteousness of Jesus. When we come to a passage like this, it should open our eyes to what Jesus spent six hours on the cross drinking in totality for you and I and every other human being who lives, has lived, and will live. And think about that. A human being has to drink that cup forever. Only one who's fully God and fully man could drink what is an eternal cup in a finite amount of time. That'll blow your mind. This should elicit an unbelievable humility on our part before God, gratitude as we realize what Jesus has saved us from and when we realize that not one of us is special or worthy for Jesus to have come. He did it solely because of a agape love, a love out of His sheer goodness. He chose to value us made in His image in that way that He came to pay the price and make a way knowing that not everyone would even take him up on it, not even a majority. Which then should make us, when we walk through a passage like this and we speak to a lost world, not rage with turn or burn anger, but plead with the passion of a loving heart and tearful eyes which says, my friend, you are not my enemy. I may be your enemy, but you are not my enemy. I am an ambassador from the one who loves you, who pleads. Set down the cup of Babylon and know the peace of Christ. Know the hope of Christ. Know the life of Christ. And I know it may not look like He reigns today, but no, He reigns today, which is why we look forward to the day we will see the Lamb stand on Zion's mount. That's how we ought to take the intensity of passages like this. They should fill us with hope. 
that no matter how dark this world gets, we hold fast to Jesus by His grace through faith because He is coming back. It should fill us with humility and gratitude because not one of us is as great and special as we think we are. But we were so valuable to Him that He chose to come and take that for, my, for me. And don't you dare think for a second then that as you walk, it's why, think about what, what I preached Sunday. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do we do when we walk through seasons where it seems like God is distant? It sounds like God is silent. We hope in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus shows that don't you ever think for a second, brother or sister, God forgets you and that's the price he paid for you. And it means we cry out with a broken heart of love to the world around us. Because God really does love this world and is patient right now to give every man, woman, boy, and girl a chance to hear, to hear multiple times, and to respond. And we better preach that gospel with all the hope and love and grace and forgiveness of Christ, of a people who will turn the other cheek, who don't view this world as our enemies, but who love those who persecute us and pray for those who claim us as their enemies. That's good news. Let me pray. Father, may we be a people of hope, a people of humility, a people of gratitude, and Lord, may we be a people of your love to take your gospel to every corner of this world and on a very personal level to every corner of our lives where you have placed us to be ambassadors. Open doors, Lord. Open doors. Fill us with your boldness and courage. And Father, find us faithful to proclaim the good news to a world that you are showing great patience. Not because you feel twisted into it, but because you delight to show patience. That Someone might not perish, but by grace through faith come to have everlasting life. Adopted, Jesus, by your blood as a son or daughter into your family. Jesus, open our eyes. May we not be able to numb ourselves to the burden of your gospel, to the missionary call that is binding on all of us. And may we be found, Lord, to be people of whose lives it is said, they followed the lamb wherever he went. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.